2 Chronicles chapter 3, and I just love teaching through the Bible, through the Old Testament. I, I feel like I'm, I, I, I feel all, that it will take, be taken the wrong way, so I was scared of saying this on Sunday morning, but I do prefer teaching through the Old Testament um, than the New Testament. It be, it's just so rich, and um, it's, uh, it's so important to get a full picture of Jesus Christ. Just can't do it, only reading the New Testament. And uh, I certainly love uh, teaching through the New Testament as well, but there's just something about reading these things. And just take the very first verse of First Chronicles Chapter 3, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. So um, David has now um, died. He's handed over the throne to Solomon. There was uh, an, an enormous amount of turmoil for a relatively brief period of time. Uh, but then Solomon's reign was established David wanted so badly to build the temple, but the Lord said, no, you're a man of blood, uh, so uh, your son will get that privilege. And so uh, Solomon, uh, so David sets up everything. He gives them the money, he gives them the labors, he gives them the, uh, the plans, and uh, then he dies, and Solomon takes him a little while, takes him a few years. It says in verse 1, he began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So my point being about the Old Testament, it's just so rich. What's up with Mount Moriah? Well, if you go to uh, Genesis chapter 22, you don't, you don't have to turn there but because but I'm going to read it. Um, but in Genesis chapter 22, we read about Mount Moriah where... Abraham was told to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice, put to death, his only son. Now, of course, we know he had another son, Ishmael, but Ishmael was uh, born through uh, um, Hagar, who was this, the servant of Sarah. But Genesis chapter two, 22 says, sacrifice your only son. It says that, even though God knew he had other sides. Sacrifice your only son, because um, there was just a, a recognition that he was the son of the promise. And, uh, and, it, and, and he's told to the place to go sacrifice your son in Genesis 22, go to the land of Moriah. So he, he many of you are familiar with the story. Um, he, he goes up to the uh, mountain to sacrifice his son. And uh, Isaac, by then as a young man, he's like, okay, uh, we're going up the mountain and uh, I, we don't have a sacrifice. Like, what are, what's going to happen? And, 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 and Abraham says what? Well, God himself will provide the lamb. And so he uh, goes, Isaac goes up. Isaac is a type of Christ. 
meaning he's a picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus would do. He actually goes up the mountain with the wood on his back, just like the cross, Jesus carrying the cross um, to, the, uh, to, to Golgotha. And he gets there and he willingly allows his father to uh, prepare a sacrifice and is willingly lays on this sacrifice, Isaac does, but just as he was about to be uh, killed, the angel, uh, the Lord said, no, stop. And uh, he, God said, now I know um, that, uh, I know that you have a heart for God. I know that you love me. And uh, he provides a lamb uh, that was uh, a male, a male lamb was, had its horns stuck in the thicket. And Abraham gets that. And of course, that is a prerequisite of, rather a, a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God being sacrificed uh, when Jesus Christ was sacrificed on Golgotha. Um, the, the Jesus was sacrificed um, on the, uh, in, the, in the region of, of Moriah, not necessarily Mount Moriah, but the same region um, uh, of Moriah. But here, um, here again, Again, it starts out, he, 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 he began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, we also know from uh, 2 Samuel, at the end of 2 Samuel, this same place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham had, uh, had sacrificed, rather, that, no, that, that Abraham had, had sacrificed. Thanks, do that whenever you want. But no, that, correct me whenever you want in church. You shout out. But where Abraham uh, made his sacrifice, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, he, there was a plague going on, and uh, God gave him a piece of land to purchase where he would make a sacrifice, a burnt offering, to make the plague stop. Same place where Abraham had sacrificed, um, was going to sacrifice his son, but sacrificed that lamb. Same place, hundreds of years later, uh, where uh, David um, made another sacrifice and the plague stopped. And so what happens when on the cross, when Jesus Christ is sacrificed a thousand years later after David and after the temple is born, a plague of sin is stopped. When you come to Jesus Christ, there's a plague overrunning your life. Eventually, it is going to consume your life and it's going to destroy you. The plague is stopped because of the sacrifice on Mount Moriah or the region of Moriah. And here we go, Solomon beginning this um, temple. You see, it all fits together. It all comes together. Um, what folks are missing by not studying the Old Testament. He, he, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So Jesus in the future, Abraham and Isaac and the Lamb in the past, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began, verse 2, to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. 
This is the foundation which Solomon laid um, for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure, and the width was 20 cubits. So a cubit is a foot and a half, so it's 90 feet long, uh, 30 feet wide. And it was pretty, uh, uh, and the height was, uh, um, uh, the height was 120. So it, 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 was, it was tall, um, but it was only 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. It says, verse 4, and the vestibule was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the height was 120. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. So uh, the, the, there's a lot of gold that had been given to Solomon. Remember, he was, it became uh, a picture, uh, Israel did, of vast wealth uh, that uh, he made, Solomon made silver as common as dirt. Uh, it, it, there was so much wealth. And then it says in verse 5, the larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work in it. And he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold from Parvaim, which apparently was some uh, destination where they got the, the best gold from. He also overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, its walls and doors with gold. And he carved cherubim on the walls. Now cherubim were angelic um, creatures uh, that actually do exist, um, but this is a representation of them. He made the most holy place, and then he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width was uh, 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of gold. So uh, that's 23 tons of, go uh, of gold. That is um, a, a lot of gold uh, there, uh, 600 talents of, of fine gold. And uh, the weight of the nails was... Uh, 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with, uh, with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. So uh, when it refers to, uh, in verse 5, the larger room, it says, the larger room he paneled with cypress and overlaid with gold. That is, from our study in the book of Exodus, that is the holy place where there was the uh, table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread which were replaced every week representing the Lord and just being the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Remember, Jesus went through a Bible study as we began in our, uh, uh, in, in our, our prayer this morning. He, last chapter of the book of Luke, he went through a Bible study with uh, a couple of disciples who thought he was dead and be become worm food. No, he resurrected and gave them a Bible study, and, and it, he would be pointing out these kind of things. The, 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 the 12 loaves in the holy place uh, that is, represents me. I am the bread of life. That was um, looking forward to me. Also in there was the table of incense in the holy place. Incense representing uh, the, uh, the, the prayers of the saints. The, um, there was also the menorah, the, 
the, the lampstand with uh, three branches going one way, three branches going another way, one in the middle, uh, seven candles. Uh, that, was, uh, that was the holy place. Now, priests went in there to do their thing, um, to make sure it was uh, operating correctly. Um, but behind the holy place, there was, in verse 8, what was called the most holy place, and that is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was um, the, over the Ark, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was uh, Moses, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments that he had received. Uh, by this time, that's all that there was in, in the temple. Originally, there was, um, there was manna in there, there was uh, the Aaron's rod was in there. We do not know what became um, of them, but by this time in Second Chronicles three, it's just um, those things, the, the Ten Commandments, and above that is the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, you have these two angelic um, uh, creatures they called the cherubim, and they're both looking at the mercy seat, and 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 the, and the very presence of the Lord was above it there was actually a light a presence of the lord above it but but the 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 most holy place where the ark of the covenant was with the presence of the lord and the holy place was separated by a veil by a veil which we read about in verse 14 it says and he made the veil of blue purple crimson and fine linen and wove cherubim into it Uh, so the most holy place and the holy place was separated by a veil and only one time per year was the high priest, and it was only the high priest, it was no other priest, able to go through the area of the veil into the most holy place. Um, and, and that only happened once a year, and it was after he had made all kinds of offerings and, 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 and this kind of thing. But uh, the, the temple is... a is basically a larger version of what Moses had made in the wilderness. And uh, it's, it's, it's now a permanent dwelling. Remember, Moses made the tabernacle. It was a tent, and it would be uh, broken down and put up depending upon where, you know, you know depending upon where the Lord uh, sent them. And he sent them to many, 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 many places. But he had said in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses, listen, I'm going to give you a place, one place, a place where I want my name to be, and that is where um, my name will stay. And so that is what's going on here, uh, and it is literally at this point about 400 to 450 years after the Israelites had come into the promised land. So they had, they had been delivered from Egypt, were in the wilderness 40 years. They went through the Jordan into modern day, what we know as Israel today, but 400 years, over 400 years, uh, they were there uh, in the land. And um, it was only, it was about after about 500 years where the temple is actually made. And so uh, there's, it's it's so ornate here. Um, there, there, there's a lot of description of how ornate things um, are. Uh, actually, let's just uh, continue here. Again, it says 
in verse 10, we already read it, but in the most holy place he made two cherubim, fashioned by carving, overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length. One wing of the cherub was five cubits touching the wall um, of the room, and the other wing was uh, five cubits uh, touching the uh, wing of the cherub. So these, these cherubim were big creatures. I mean, so uh, one wing, five cubits, so that's, uh, is that seven and a half feet? So I, that, that would be uh, like right about here. This is a big old wing, and that's just, each wing was that big. Uh, and, uh, and, and the amazing, play, the, the amazing thing here, it's very, very ornate, but no one ever saw these things except the high priest once a year. Uh, but they were, they were very ornate. There was a lot going on uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the, the detail each other. It says, uh, it, it, it says here that the, the wings of the cherubim span 20 cubits overall. They, so this is just huge. So I guess from wingspan to wingspan, you know, basketball players, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but when they're recruiting basketball players, they talk about the basketball player's wingspan. How many of you have heard that, just so I know? So maybe like three or four people. So wingspan, you, you want these players that have a big wingspan, because that means that their arms from one end to the other is really, really long, and they can be grabbing balls and, you know, and, 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 and this type of thing, uh, uh, and it's... it's uh, uh, it's, it's actually incredible. I just told, told the story a few days ago to uh, some folks about how I, had, um, uh, how I had played with four players on my, uh, on, in college who went on, all of them went on to be to the, uh, to the pros. And it's just amazing when you can just throw it way up in the air and some guy can just go like this and the, the wingspan. But the wingspan uh, was just enormous of these angelic creatures uh, 35 feet. Uh, so this is like a big old thing. Uh, I shouldn't say old thing. It was a, a magnificent, these two creatures, they stood on the um, feet and they faced, verse 13 says, and they faced inward. Actually, the book of Exodus says they're looking at the mercy seat. Now, that is um, a, a, an important an important point. They're looking at the mercy seat. Like, what is going on with that? It doesn't say that here. It says it in, in, in Exodus uh, 25. We know that from Exodus 25, 20, it says, The cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. We read in First Peter chapter 1, uh, it says this in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the New Testament, of this salvation, speaking of Jesus' salvation of you, that though you have accumulated enough sin to send you to hell a thousand times, Jesus took on your sin on the cross and He suffered the wrath of God instead of you. 
He died instead of you, but then was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And after he ascended to heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit in you. And you now have Jesus Christ in your heart. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. More on that in a little bit. And, and so Peter says, of this salvation, of this mercy, of this mercy, the mercy seat. He says, the angels, verse 12, longed to look into. They longed to look into. And, and so the idea is, is that these cherubim are looking at the mercy seat, they, it, and, and the angels, representing the angels of God, who are amazed at the mercy of God. You see, by this time, book of Revelation says, a third of the angels in heaven had been cast out because of rebellion, and God gave a decree of eternal destruction in a lake of fire. From time to time, um, you hear, can an angel be, uh, a demon, demonic angel, be saved? The answer is no. There's already been a decree of their eternal destruction. They are doomed to perdition. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't. I'm just, I laugh because it's a, it's a, new, it's a King James word. They're, due, they're doomed to perdition. They're, there's a decree. And, and that's just plain old justice, right? So, but the angels are like, wow, for human beings, though they made the same decision as Satan did at one point, meaning they thought, wow, I want to be like God. That's what, exactly what Eve and Adam thought. I want to be like God. And so, but they rebelled. God began a plan of redemption for them, beginning with Abraham, raising up a nation. And then there's the king, David's the first king that, in the line of the Messiah. And the whole idea, eventually resulting in the Lamb of God who was going to be slain. He was slain before the foundation of the world. And, and, and so the angels are like amazed at it. They're looking at the mercy. It's like, wow, the mercy. And, 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 uh, and just reflecting on the mercy of God. You know, we begin noon prayer each day crying out to God. And a lot of times what you hear in this first 20 to 30 minutes where people are just crying out to God, your mercy, oh, wow, it's just incredible. I spend a lot of time, my time praying that you would see the connection between your sin and Jesus' death and the mercy that has been given to you. So the, 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 these cherubim looking 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks a year, just looking at the, uh, at the mercy seat, looking. They're facing each other, looking, just amazed at the mercy of God. And that needs to be you, and it needs to be me. Just amazed, walking day to day, amazed at the... Why did not we get the same decree as those third of angels who were cast out of heaven? Why? I don't have an answer for you. But we need to worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, uh, because He's like that. So this, this picture of, uh, of, of the cherubim facing each other, looking at the... Um, at the mercy seat. And again, it says, and, and he made the veil, 
This is Solomon, the workers under Solomon. We know it was this guy Huram from chapter 2 who, who, who came from, uh, uh, from modern-day Lebanon. He came down to, he was the craftsman. He made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubim into it. Now, uh, for my scripture memory uh, uh, a, w- a while ago, by the way, we have another one. It's the s- second week of December. Be memorizing your 12 verses. Cleveland, what are you memorizing for the second week in December? What are you memorizing? Psalm 51. One of my favorite psalms in the Bible. Uh, I, I, my heart melts every time that um, I, 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 I read that psalm. So be thinking about that second week of December. I don't want to be alone on that Zoom call just with Cleveland. Uh, I do not want to. Uh, and, and, and by the way, someone tell Freddie to start his memorizing before the beginning of the meeting. I, he, he, he literally mem- starts memorizing at the beginning of the meeting. And he's always the last person. Now, that is this. I'm sorry, I'm going way off on a rabbit trail, but I thought that is a particular level of intelligence where you can be listening to people and memorizing something at the same time. Freddie, Pastor Freddie Bafuka, there he is right there. But uh, 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 don't do that. Do, don't do that. Do, uh, do what he says. Well, do what he preaches, but not what he does. <laughs> so, um, but, but anyway... Uh, uh, I memorized um, a while back the, the Passion in Matthew, and, and one of the great things, I was talking to Cleveland about it today, one of the great things about memorizing, you have your own Bible study while you're memorizing. And, and it says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, he's on the cross, and he yielded up his spirit, he gave up his spirit, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Almost, the majority of my Christian life, I just assumed the veil was, because of that verse, I was familiar with that verse, I, I just assumed the veil was made out of, like, wood or something like that. I mean, how else can something tear in an earth? It, 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 by the way, the next part of the verse is, and the earthquake. So I was like, okay, it must have, the earthquake must have made the veil crack in two. But no, it was a, it was a garment. It was a supernatural occurrence, not not a garment, it was a, what would you call it? It was a fabric. It it was made out of a fabric, and and so it was supernaturally ripped from the top to the bottom. And, uh, And it's the first thing that it says after Jesus dies in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. The very first thing, the moment he breathed his last, it says the veil was torn from top to bottom. Which means what? Of course, that now you, a believer in Christ, you don't have to go to a priest. You can go directly inside the most holy place where the presence of God is, and it's not a temple anymore. It's not a temple anymore. It's wherever you are. You can be in Argentina. I hope some of you will be joining us. There's an interest, interest meeting this Sunday or uh, to Argentina in February. We're going there to, uh, to, to support Pastor Greg and his wife Jillian. You can be in China. You can be in uh, Hawaii. You can be um, freezing 
to death in, in, in Antarctica. Lord, save me. I'm freezing to wherever you are. You can, you can go right inside the veil. You can, uh, waking up in the middle of the night at three or four in the morning, just crying out to God on your bed. I pray that many of you will, will experience the wonder and glory of recognizing on your bed in the middle of the night, like you can talk to God. Right there, you can talk to Him. I, I, I pray you would, you would get that sensation of, wow, I'm talking to God, and it's the middle of the night. But it's a big, big deal. But then, of the veil, it's a very important thing, was made so that no one would go back there. That's why the veil was made, so no one would go back there except the high priest once a year, and that only after baptisms and all kinds of sacrifices of animals. Uh, of course, all of that, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. But there was a separation there. Uh, right there, verse 14, it says, and this is the veil. It's made of, of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen. Verse 15, he made in front of the temple two pillars, uh, 35 cubits high. Now, those are 52 feet. So th this is really high. Um, the, the, these, the, the temple was, was fairly high for, the, for, for that time period, 52 feet high, these enormous pillars. The capital that was um, on the top of each of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work, as in the inner sanctuary, and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work. Then he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. He called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, and the one on um, the left, Boaz. So there's these gigantic pillars in front of the temple. None of this existed in the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent. This is a permanent structure. There's two gigantic pillars. And, um, and, and so uh, and, and there's pomegranates and things like that on, on the pillars or on the capitals and, uh, of them. And uh, uh, Jachin means strength. Boaz means security. And so the... Uh, just that picture of, of strength and security. This is where we get our strength. When we go to the, it, it, to the presence of the Lord, when we go to the Lord. Um, I just, again, love that verse. After 16 months backsliding from the Lord, we talked about last Sunday, 1 Samuel 27 through 30. It, um, he, David uh, realizes the consequence of backsliding. The whole city that he was given by the devil burned, and he realized, wow, I need to go back to the Lord now. It says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And then everything reverses, and he recovers um, all. It says he recovers all. Three times it mentions he, he will or has recovered all uh, that, that he, he got. And, and, it, and, and so I bring up that verse just because strength, your strength is in the Lord. I was talking uh, to a brother before the service. We're, we're strengthened in particularly when we recognize, and he was preaching to me, when we recognize our weakness, 
that's when we're strongest. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When we are weak, when we recognize our weakness, we're the most strong. And so, uh, and so these two gigantic pillars, one is strength, uh, Jacob, the other is Boaz, security, the temple, people would be coming from all over the world to, um, to, to the temple. Um, and so, um, uh, so uh, there's where chapter 3 ends. Now, in 1 Kings, there's way, way, way more detail. But I, I just want to, want to point this out this is you know in in verse five and in in the holy place it talks of carving palm trees uh there there's a lot of just detail here with the wings in verses um 11 and 12 of the cherubim uh the the, it, it it says the veil there's there's blue crimson uh and purple there uh it it talks of a uh, hundred pomegranates on top of these 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 pillars. They they're actually the fine detail that is going into this temple. Now there's something else that happened when Jesus yielded up His Spirit. Not only was the veil torn, the the presence of the Lord departed from the temple and went into you, to believers in Jesus Christ at that time. At that time, initially and, and forever forward. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? And I, I just want to make this point. All of this that you're reading in here about the temple, all the ornate detail, those hundred pomegranates, and there's, uh, again, there's a, a much, there's carved palm trees, there's much other detail in, in, in First Kings. But the Lord says of you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that He is transforming you into the image of Christ. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those who he foreknew, meaning those who he loved and saved, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ so that he, Jesus, would become the first of many, many brethren. And one of the things that he wants to do in you, he wants to carve inside of you and create the most ornate detail of beauty in your life. Where, where the offering that, that he gets from you is distinct from every other offering in, in, the, in, the, in the whole world. You know, when I was um, in, in college, um, there was a popular, a popular song by Bob Seeger, I Feel Like a Number. Um, and that is, in fact, what any human being feels apart from Christ. It's like a number. I'm just a number. I'm just no different than every, everyone else. But in Christ, man, the Lord wants to make 
you. He wants, to, he wants to carve those palm trees inside of you, those pomegranates, and all those. It says there's chain work, um, and there's, there's the, the wings of cherubim. There's that detail that he wants to do in your life. I, I tell you, in these, in these later years of my, uh, of my walk with the Lord, I, I, I am so, so focused on trying to get the word out that the Lord wants to transform you into someone completely different than you were when you got saved, and he wants to make you into a unique offering. I am so sick and tired in the evangelical world of people, uh, 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 of, of, of preachers and churches just basically preaching grace. You get saved, and then you just, you're in a holding pattern until you die, and, and you go to heaven. There's no... There's no seeking after God in which you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's no crying out to God, Lord, would you please, would you expose that which is in me, which is, which is, um, which is not of you. Would you make those pomegranates, Lord? Would you make the palm trees? Would you make me into the man, the woman that you want me to be? That's the picture we get in 2 Chronicles 3 of the temple, and you are the temple. And, and, and so uh, it grieves me enormously when I speak with a Christian that I knew 30 years ago, and there's been no change in their life. And I tell you, it, ha- it's happened, it happens time and time and time again. It just grieves me tremendously. And, and I, I, don't want that on, I don't want that on my to hear on the judgment day where it says that God has, there is a day of judgment. We're all going to have Romans uh, chapter um, 14 says, every one of us is going to give a, an explanation before the Lord. I don't want to say, well, Steve, you know, you pastored this church and man, no one ever changed because you never said they had to change. All you said they had to do was say the sinner's prayer and then wait around like fire insurance to be escaped from, uh, escape from hell until they die someday. I don't want that. I want you to understand God wants to be carving those pomegranates in your life. Those palm trees, that unique thing. But it's going to take that crying out, that fire. You know, a lot of this stuff was refined in the fire. You don't just make carvings out of gold uh, and, and like chip away unless that thing's really hot. It's got to be a lot of heat. And there's a lot of heat when we're changing, when we're going before the Lord and we're crying out to Him, God, God, I, I, I have this thing in my life. It's not going away. Would you change my... There's a lot of heat when we are... Uh, when, when we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, there's a lot of heat there. There's a lot of pain. But what, what cheap grace does, when I say cheap grace, just you know, say the sinner's prayer and then wait for 30 years until you die, and you don't have to worry about changing because you're saved. That's a theology that's prevalent out there. But the problem with that, with that theology, it, it, turns, it gives us a spiritual slothfulness. Do you guys know what a sloth is? How many of you know... I used to have a sloth in my backyard. We did, in our backyard in, in, in Venezuela. There was a sloth who lived in our backyard. This is a sloth. A sloth sees something it really, really likes, um, a piece of fruit uh, in front of it. They see something it really... We used to watch these things, and, 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 and this is what it does. 
This is what a sloth does. About how fast it moves. It moves very slowly. Spiritual slothfulness is like, well, you know, I know I really should go and, and, and to the Lord and, and pray and cry out like David did, search me. In Psalm 139, search me, examine me, see if there's any wicked way in me. But, you know, I, I'm saved anyway. I don't have to do that today. And then the next day, the same thing happens. And the next day, the same thing happens. And then it's weeks, and then it's years. And there's a spiritual slothfulness that comes from cheap grace, the doctrines of cheap grace. But the Lord wants to chisel away at you and make you into a, a, a refined as gold where when he looks at you, um, you're refined. The impurities are being cast out in such a way you can see the reflection of his son when he looks at your life. Now, I know we don't feel like that oftentimes because we fall on our face and we sin and we, and we mess up. But that's who the Lord is. Uh, and there's a promise that you can... You can latch on to, again, in Romans 8, 29, that'll happen. Those whom he foreknew, and he foreknew each one of you, he has predestined to be transformed in the image of his son so that Jesus will be the firstborn of many brethren, meaning you and you and you. So he's building the temple here. The temple is... um, has been replaced by you and me. We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit, but he is going to uh, just continue uh, in chapter 4. So let's go, to, uh, let's go to chapter 4. It says, Moreover, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. So the bronze altar, just so you know, it's, it's the grill where they... Put the sacrifices on, and they offer the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings in the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, they go through the offerings. The very first one is the burnt offering, where the whole offering, unlike the sin offering and peace offering and other offerings, the whole offering was consumed in the fire. In Romans 12, 1, Paul makes an Illusion, A-L-L-U-S-O-I-O-N. Allusion to a burnt offering where he says, present your bodies as living offerings, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. So that's, that's what this is. It's an, it, it's, it's, it, it's an altar. We think of an altar as a place you go up to and say prayers. I don't particularly like the translation here. It, 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 it's, it's not really as an altar as much as um, it's a place of sacrifice, like a big grill. So, Caillou, do we have that picture? Are you up there, Caillou? Do we have that picture of the temple? And we, we may have a picture right now of the temple. Unfortunately, I don't have my favorite little thing, the, uh, the, the laser light to point at it. I'll just wait. Give me a thumbs up if you're able to get it up there. But he, he, he made this bronze altar, and so this goes in front of the entryway. Oh, there it is. Okay. So here, here's this temple. Notice all the, it, it's like a building cut in half, so that's, that's all the gold inside. I mean, it was just, just amazing in there. And, and, and the amazing thing about that is very few people, if um, saw all that gold, and then only one person saw the, on the left side all that gold, and it's just, it, it, 
when the Lord is transforming you, you now that being the temple of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people will not really understand the beauty of what's going on inside of you. Now, it's true that um, when we grow as a Christian, people will notice a difference and that type of thing. When they notice a difference, they have no idea the beauty that is being built up um, inside of you. Uh, but we're just about to read of this labor here. That's um, a, a, underneath the labor, there's oxen. We're going to read about that. That's water. But there's the burnt altar, uh, uh, the, uh, the altar of... Um, where they offered the sacrifices right there. It was huge. It was gigantic. But you had to go through that to get into the temple. And so even that, there's a big, that's, a, that's, that, that's enormously symbolic and important. You can't go into the presence of the Lord except through sacrifice. Now this is not what you hear in the world. The United States, the most popular religion, really, when it comes down to it, is pantheism, where sort of God is, we borrowed this from, from India and China and Japan, Buddhism and Hinduism, pantheism, where God's in everything. He's, we all have the light inside of us. And so we can go up to, we can, anyone can, sac, any, uh, rather, anyone can talk to God at any time, wherever they are, whatever you, but they have holy mountains and stuff like that that you can go to. There's some mountain in California where it's important to the New Age movement. And, uh, but that simply is not true. You can't just go into the presence of God unless you go through sacrifice, through the, the place of sacrifice. Now, at that time, again, it was literal lambs that they would sacrifice on the altar um, there on the right. Every morning and every evening, there was a lamb that was sacrificed. But the lamb of God, remember when Jesus was approaching at the very end of, uh, beginning of the book of John, he says, behold, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the lamb of God was sacrificed, every time now that you you, you, you go to the Lord and pray, you're going through the sacrifice, in a sense. You're, you're doing the same thing. You're going through. It's because of the sacrifice. It is simply not true that anyone, regardless of whether they are a Christian or not, can just go into the presence of God and start praying. They can, they can start praying, but they're literally speaking to the air. And, and my, my mentor, Damien Kyle, I love the way he, that he puts it. He, would you let someone come into your living room, uh, but come in on their terms and not your terms? Now, when someone comes into my living room, I mean, I have kids, grandkids in, in my house. They got to behave in a certain way. I mean, they can't just come into, uh, come into my house in my living room and be wreaking havoc and be cursing and come in with a fifth of vodka and, and, and sloshing it down and um, blaring ACDC. They're not coming into my living room like that. Absolutely not. I have, I, this, is God, this, is, this is God's house, but I, I, I'm, 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 the, you know, I'm the steward of the house. I have children. I have a wife. How absurd is it? No one, no one is going to argue with that, right? Like no one in the world is going to argue with it that you can come into someone's living room on your own terms. No one would ever say, but yet when it comes to God, that's what most people say. You can go to God on any terms that you want. Are you crazy? Am I crazy? That's what I believed for 24 years of my life. Am I nuts? 
That I can just go into the presence of God on my terms? The Bible says God's a consuming fire. Why would we ever think that? It's the nature of sin. The Bible says that sin is deceitful. 